1: <laughs> Greetings, dear listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, NPR. Jack Butler just uh, told me that I always start the show yelling, and so I figured I'd screw with him. Uh, welcome to another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast. This week's episode is brought to you by NR Plus, but not Starbucks. I'm going to get to our guest in a second, but I had a very disturbing experience just 20 minutes before I came into, the air, into these palatial studios. I was at a Starbucks. I got a cup of coffee and I wanted to get one of those, like, not, not the kind bars, but they have these other bars that they say, these bars save lives, and I kind of like the taste, whatever. I don't, I don't even know what cause they go to. And I put it down on the counter for the cashier, and she looks at it, and she says, did you open this? And I said, no. And she says, oh, okay, one, I'll, uh, I'll grab another. And I grabbed another, and that one clearly was opened. And uh, she didn't explicitly say it, but it was pretty clear that they have a rat or mouse problem, and they had been chewing into the bars there. And so I was like, I'll just have the coffee. Um, that kind of wigged me out. Anyway, now that we got the important stuff aside, uh, our guest today is Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin's 8th District, right? Not the radio talk show host. I went on Wikipedia to look you up, and there are a lot of Mike Gallagher's out there.
0: Yeah, too many. Yeah. It's we, like Highlander. There can be only one in absolutely. the end, so... We,
1: we need to pass a law. That's
0: right. <laughs> if only we knew people. <laughs> and, we're in the uh, business of doing such things.
1: And you just got reelected to your second term. Indeed, uh, congratulations. I also, um, I knew that you were in the Marines um, and that you had uh, two tours of duty. Right. Sure. I knew that part because Danny Pletka here at AI is a huge fan of yours and she touts you all the time. I did not realize that you had reams of like eggheadery uh, graduate degrees. Um, you went to Princeton. I did go to Princeton. Woodrow
0: Wilson School, indeed. Yeah, back in the day. Was back this some, some sort of
1: geographic quota of some kind? This
0: was the yeah, the one Wisconsinite that they let in every <laughs> every decade. Uh, so you bring the cheese curds. That's right, we bring the curds. Yeah, we bring the fun. Um, but yeah, went Princeton and kind of studied the Near East and Arabic, and that led me to join the Marine Corps. And then I didn't even know when I joined the Marine Corps that there was this extraordinarily generous benefit known as the GI Bill, mm-hmm. which ultimately ended up paving the way for me to go to grad school. I was in a a program here in DC. I'd done my tour in the fleet, and then I did a, a B-billet here in the National Capital Region where I was working in the intelligence community, got a master's degree at National Intelligence University. And I had a professor that, based on the thesis I wrote for that, said, hey, you should see about turning this into a PhD. And I didn't really know what that was at the uh. time. And that just kind of... Opened the, the way to Georgetown and kind of cobbled it together and was able to get it done.
1: So have you pl- always played this aw shucks country bumpkin, I don't know what I'm doing here card? Is this is this how you got elected?
0: <laughs> I swear there was no, like at no point when I came to D.C. was I thinking I'm going to get a Ph.D. from Georgetown. Yeah. And indeed it was, there was a lot of doubt as to whether I, I could finish it at the time. And um, I was kind of shifting my whole focus from being a Middle East guy. I was a human intelligence officer in the Marine Corps, but I was also had a secondary MOS as a um, regional affairs officer for the Middle East and North Africa. Had a decent Arabic ability at the time but I kind of wanted to shift to become more of a generalist and sort of started focusing on presidential decision-making. And I just became enamored with the early Cold War and, in particular, the beginning of the Eisenhower administration. Uh-huh. And I wrote my master's thesis on a particular grand strategy exercise that Eisenhower conducted in 53 at the beginning of his administration. And that sort of opened up a whole other set of research questions that led to my PhD. So it was really kind of stumbling into a huge opportunity. And then, you know, it was great. Great cool. experience. So, um the ostensible reason you're here, but um, just to
1: clue listeners in, um, I've talked about this before. I generally don't like to get too chummy with politicians. My attitude is sort of like research scientists towards their lab animals. You know, it's much easier to stick a needle and test subject 43B <laughs> than into Fluffy. Um, but uh, Mike is along with Ben Sass, and maybe that's the that may be the entire set, of I think it through, <laughs> of politicians who have actually become friendly with. And you guys kind of see things in similar lights, at least on some things. And the, so the ostensible reason you're here, other than the, the money I owed you, um, is that uh, you wrote a big thumbsucky piece about congressional reform in the Atlantic, and shockingly, Nobody on Fox and Friends wants to give you, like, 40 minutes to talk through it, so you have to go to the podcasts, right?
0: <laughs> well, let me say I, I appreciate the kind words you said about our uh, whatever that relationship is uh-huh, be. Yeah. Uh, and I'm usually not friendly and chummy with evil globalists such as yourself, but I'll make an exception in this case. It's too. pronounced globalists. <laughs> But I should say, I, I, I think I'm going to go on Fox, on Dana Perina's show tomorrow to talk about it. So there has been that some interest sense, yeah. and uh, had a very interesting exchange on a Morning Joe uh, uh-huh. about it. And so the response has been has been interesting. Obviously, yeah. there's been a lot of negative responses from people occupying leadership positions on sure. Capitol Hill. But, sure. Uh, certainly back in my district. And then, interestingly enough... A lot of staffers that I pass in the hall will sort of come up to me and say, "Hey, I really liked your piece." But yeah, yeah. Don't tell my boss that I said. That. So, <laughs> okay. It's been interesting. Um, how often do you get mistaken for a staffer? Uh, actually, this is because tr- you're a millennial, right? True. I I am an old millennial. I'm yeah. 34, so I think I'm technically in the window there. So this actually happened. The first big classified briefing we had on Russia. It was this was like. Right at the beginning of the 115th Congress, there was a group of security guards in this big sort of classified auditorium that we're in that were pointing at me and were telling other people that I had to leave because they remembered me when I was a Senate staffer Uh and they thought I had sort of infiltrated this members only discussion. So it does happen. And then particularly if I forget my congressional pin and I try and go around security, I get stopped and people look uh, look at me like I'm a staffer.
1: So. Do you have to like bust out Marine moves and rip out someone's I, larynx or anything yeah, like that?
0: I usually have to choke somebody out. Yeah. It's only happened about four or five times, um, so I'm trying to limit it to once a week. Sure, uh, sure now, sure. but uh, yeah, you know. So um, why don't you um,
1: to fill the wonk quotient here? Why don't you talk me through your basic critique of how Congress works now? And how you want to – and I'll chime
0: in from time to time and sure. and,
1: and maybe we'll get – and then we'll get to how to fix
0: it. Okay. Uh, so listen, I think there's been two basic trends that have been happening in Congress. One has actually been well covered by a lot of people and I think was most succinctly expressed by our mutual friend, uh, friend Ben Sass. And I hope that after we get the wonk quotient out of the way, we can at least spend about 15 minutes just making fun of Ben Sass at the end of this podcast. That yeah, is, we can probably okay, that. Okay, good. Maybe 10, 5, sure, i, sure, I sure, take. Sure. Um, I mean what a nerd that guy is. He is. Uh, so which is to say in the speech- smartest Uber driver I know. That's, <laughs>
2: that's
0: right. That's right. Uh, in his speech uh, during the Kavanaugh hearings, I think he sort of really powerfully expressed the way in which Congress has neutered itself and transferred a lot of its constitutional authority to the executive branch. One of my favorite things to do with uh, when I'm speaking to a group of conservatives is sort of tell them to look up something that Politico does, which is uh, I think every week they publish something called Five Things Trump Did While You Weren't Looking. Right. And if you're a conservative and you read it, it's awesome, right? right. It's, the administration is doing this and that executive order, undoing a dumb Obama executive order or regulation. But the point I try and make at the end is that, well, no, actually, this should anger you because- right. This ultimately shows that Congress isn't doing its job. And unless we want to keep ping-ponging back and forth between presidents with dramatically different uh, visions or we want our politics to basically just become us awaiting the coming of a messianic presidential figure every four years, Congress needs to be in the business of reclaiming some of its authority. And in my first year, I've been shocked at how little interest there is in Congress in doing that. I, for example, introduced a bill that would require Congress to vote vote. Uh, up or down anytime the president wants to impose tariffs under Section 232. So this is the national security right. logic he's using to do the steel and aluminum tariffs. Largely and we gave paralyzing. that authority,
1: what, in the late 50s? Yeah, so 50s? this is –
0: it was a series of, of moves. But the irony that I think you're getting at is that Congress actually gave away this authority to the right. executive branch as part of a trade liberalizing measure. Right. The theory was that the executive branch is more of a unitary actor, would be less parochial, whereas the 535 members of the House right. and the Senate, you know, I'm going to be arguing for dairy, you know. Right. The Ben Sasses will be arguing for whatever they grow in Nebraska. Corn, corn. 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 I thought it was like corn. books or something. No, no, uh, just, yeah. okay. just corn. It's just just of corn. corn. So much corn Endle- <laughs> <laughs> endless amounts of corn. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so that so this is the big the the big uh, distortion of our system of government that has been well covered by other people. I think an underexplored phenomenon has been the way in which power has shifted within the institution that has abetted that first big trend, which right. is to say, uh, starting in the '70s with the Watergate babies. And Accelerating again under the Republicans in the 90s with the Gingrich Re- Revolution, power, which used to be very tightly controlled with committee chairs that were in some cases overpowered, has now become uh, very tightly concentrated at the top uh, in something called the steering committee, which populates the committees and then chooses committee chairman and basically comprises the most powerful members of the House. And so as a result... Uh, regular order has has broken down. Individual members feel less powerful or, or disenfranchised in ways they didn't in the past. And I actually think that this is um, a key thing for people to understand. Not only in order for Congress to reclaim its authority under the Constitution, do we need to increase the resources Congress has in general, right? And this is where a lot of the Gingrich reforms, I think, were counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Doing things like reducing the amount of congressional staff... Sounds good, you know, if you're trying to drain the swamp, but it actually has the opposite effect if you're a conservative and care about controlling the growth of a government, which is largely a function of the size of the executive branch or just the payments that we automatically put on autopilot. But you also need to find a way to devolve power back from leadership to the committees in order to get the committees working again. And you want the committees to be where most of the action happens because that's the only chance, in my opinion, you have of doing effective oversight. Committees are where you can develop expertise or where you can really start to understand for example, on the Armed Services Committee, just what the heck the Pentagon is doing. Or if you're on one of the seven committees that plays in the healthcare space, start to understand just the crazy labyrinth that is our healthcare system and where we're wasting a lot of value. And so I just started to study this over the last two years, uh, did a lot of sort of behind the scenes sessions with the parliamentarian and tried to understand how the rules have evolved. And I really just was struck by this thought that when I first campaigned for Congress, I sort of assumed that Congress was bad because the people were unqualified or just ruthlessly ambitious, right? Mm -hmm. So part of that is true, but that's always been true. Right. That's been true since the beginning of the republic. So what's changed is is that the process has broken down. And I believe that if you can get the best people in the world to run for office and get them elected, but if they're met with terrible process, they're going to get crushed or they're going to get disillusioned. And a lot of them aren't just aren't going to want to play the game over two decades in the hopes that they can become a subcommittee chair one day and then sell their soul to become, you know, something else after right, that. Right. So that was just kind of what gave birth to the piece. Uh, and then I sort of proposed, a, I sort of tried to think, what are the the simplest things you could do, right? stuff that wouldn't even require you to pass the law, it wouldn't require a constitutional amendment like term limits, just the simple things that the House could control to start to do things differently and fix some of this. And so I propose changing the schedule so that we're actually here more working more. Now, I think for conservatives, there's a concern that, you know, maybe you don't want Congress to be in session because it could do a lot of stupid things. And I'll admit that when people in my district come up to me and say, you know, why can't you guys just get stuff done, right? I I do want to say, well, Congress does do a lot of things. The House passes a lot of stuff. The House passes a ton of stuff. Yep. But if you look at it, and I could pull up the list of the suspension bills we're voting on tonight. There's like 20 of them. A lot of it, it's not the big stuff, right? Right. Um, The House has an instinct for the capillary in many cases, and it avoids uh, the big debates. And there's no debate about whether the small things we're doing are actually useful, right? A lot of it's just uh, activity to create the illusion of progress, Mm -hmm. if you will. And so changing the schedule, I think, would actually help with that, forcing people to be in DC and and do work. You'd need some other things to make sure they weren't spending all that time fundraising. Uh, I think, as I mentioned, devolving power from the steering committee back down to the committees. And the only mechanism I've found to do that is by allowing committee chairs to be elected by the members of the committee rather than the steering committee itself, although I submitted that as an amendment two weeks ago and it went down in flames. I think the vote was 120 to 40 and three voted present.
1: Why don't you talk through just for a second the role that fundraising
0: plays getting on the steering committee and what it does? So, Lynn, and... This is politics, right? Uh-huh. I get it. People need to raise money. You can have the best story in the world. And if you're not able to advertise on TV or on digital, you're not going to get anywhere. So I'm not naive enough to think we're going to live in a, a money-free universe, although that would be nice. Because um, I do think the insidious effect of money is not that – people don't come into your office with like a cartoon you know, bag with a dollar sign on it and yeah. say, vote for this. It's that the time you spend fundraising crowds out the time that's necessary to be doing oversight, to right. be doing budgeting, to actually – Read the bills that you vote on prior to voting on them, which doesn't happen right now. And so in order to be given the committee assignments you want in order to advance in Congress, you have to prove that you're a team player. Part of that's voting the right way, voting with leadership. But the other part of that, and I think most people don't understand, is that you're paying your dues to the National Republican Congressional Committee. And your dues vary in proportion to the value of your committee. So if you're on a lucrative committee, say financial services, where you can raise a lot of money from Wall Street, you then have to pay more money to have the right to be on that committee. So it's not a meritocracy, right? Right. And as much as you know, people argued against my amendment two weeks ago. This week we're gonna the steering committee is going to choose committee chairs, and I guarantee you that a big part of their presentations, which won't be public, to the steering committee won't be about you know here's what I've accomplished legislatively on this issue area. Here's my vision for let's say. You know the small business committee or energy and commerce going forward. It's going to be about this is how much money I've raised for the party. Right. This is how much money I've raised for you know uh, the NRCC and candidates and how we've distributed it. And so that's sort of the weird pay to play system that reinforces the existing status quo. What, I, what what is the best defense you've heard of that system? Uh, Paul Ryan had a very principled defense, which is to say. That they have made some reforms to how the steering committee is structured in recent years. And I only have this last Congress as a, right. a frame of reference. So I, you know, uh, but I do think it's empirically indisputable that power has become more and more concentrated from the steering committee, at least since the 70s, with perhaps a few changes over time. Uh, but he, his concern was that a, a, a system in which. Committee chairs were elected by the members of the committee would be more vulnerable to special interest capture. Mm-hmm. In other words, if that prospective committee chairman or existing committee chairman who wanted to retain his or her seat was worried about, you know, an insurgency from his members, his sole goal would be to placate the members of the committee. Right. So he would say, "Okay, what how, what I need to do to buy this person off?" Mm-hmm. And who are the biggest employers in their district, or et cetera, et cetera. So that's an interesting. I think, counter-argument. I I would submit to you that the situation where a very small number of people control what bills come to the floor or what is in those bills is just as vulnerable to special interest capture, which is what we have right now. A situation in which people aren't reading the bills before they vote on them is not a situation where people can do oversight or do their due diligence to to ensure that bills aren't loaded with pork. There's a whole separate argument about we got rid of earmarks a few years ago, and I actually think that's unleashed some unintended consequences. Yeah,
1: I've talked, and I should say, Paul Ryan is probably the third politician who's sort of on that list of politicians that I have a
0: yeah, friendship a with,
1: and I like Paul. I have some criticisms uh, in recent years, but um, I, I'm generally a Paul Ryan fan. And I've asked him about that, right, about the earmarks thing, because I think you can make a case that – I mean, let's put it this way. Um, if you believe, as I do, that, like, entitlement reform is vital, right, just because you look at the debt, yeah. if you could bribe – Called naked bribes, right? Each congressman with a community rec center or a bridge or you know even a stadium, right? In exchange for meaningful entitlement reform, that would be a there would be pennies on the dollar in terms of the savings that we would get for um, our national for fixing our long term fiscal outlook, right? And and so I, it's funny. I was I I was in Washington when you were in high school, my God, um, or grade school, for the contract with America stuff, right? And at the time, I was all in for that. Yeah. And the more I look back on it, the more I think, while it was a brilliant campaign for getting, for taking over Congress, and Newt did a fantastic job of that, the actual reforms have made Congress worse, for the most part. On the whole, I'm not saying that every single thing they did, you know, term limiting committee chairs had a good argument for it back then. But
0: but even that's interesting because they, they also term limited, uh, I believe, the speaker at the same time, but then got rid of the term limits for... The Speaker. Yeah. Now, that may not be as big of a deal because the Speaker is such a perilous position that, you know, right. it's, it's hard to imagine a scenario in the modern day where people are going to hold on to that. But in the era of Tip O'Neill, that seemed like. Totally. Was, yeah, totally. Yeah. Right? right. So, again, I mean, Gingrich's moves were to reinforce his own power. Right. And he also uh, subverted uh, seniority in appointing a lot of committee chairs. And so and then again, getting rid of the Office of Technical Assessment made sense from a messaging, hey, we're going to get rid of these useless congressional uh, agencies, but again, it's just all it does is put Congress at a, at a relative disadvantage to the executive branch. And as right. an individual member of Congress with a very small staff, a lot of times you're just struggling to, you know, carve out the time necessary to uh, do effective oversight or, or read legislation. And if, if you're just being served everything from the top down, it doesn't actually create buy into the process. And I think that's why people get so disgruntled. And so you know, when I argue for my uh, point, I think I ended with something that I I think is true, I, which and that we're going to discover. In the next few Congresses, is that in order to wield power effectively, whoever controls the House has to be willing to give a lot of it up. And that means the process gets a little bit more messy. Right. And as I allude to in the piece, or maybe I explicitly say it, um, a lot of people like the current system because leadership uh, shields them from having to take tough votes. Right. 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 And so in sort of my system it would be a little bit messier. You'd have to take a lot of tough votes. You'd mm-hmm. have a more open process. There'd be amendments and some of them would be stupid and, you know, people would use it for grandstanding purposes. But I, I think that that's a trade-off I'm certainly willing to make. And I think the voters um, could understand that at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. I mean, so, th- I mean, this is all in my, uh, as, as listeners know, I've been sort of obsessing about, you know, I'm really not normally a sort of Norm Ornstein process guy, right? I would much rather talk about not immunitizing the Eschaton and other philosophical stuff or Star Trek. But, you know, this point I keep hammering on is that a big part of our problem is that it's sort of 2 They're all interconnected. But part of our problem is we live in one of the most partisan moments in American history, right? Yeah. Going back to maybe... I mean, 1850s were more partisan. Yeah. But the parties have never been weaker, right? And so you have this situation where all of these outside institutions... Um, it's sort of part of the argument from this book, The Party Decides, have, have filled the vacuum. So National Review has always played this sort of this role of vetting candidates, um, applying a more stringent conservative litmus test rather than a party test kind of thing. You have outside groups like whether it's the NRA or Planned Parenthood who are performing what used to be party functions. Right. Of sort of vetting candidates, making sure that they are signed off on certain, you know, ideological commitments or political commitments. And it seems to me that if the parties were stronger, you could have a system where, um, first of all, you wouldn't get crazy outside candidates stealing primaries or stealing elections. We don't have to fill in names and all that right now. People know where I'm coming from on that. But you would also have the ability, you know, party. That was a Macron reference. Yes, totally. uh, it, was, it was actually a Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> reference. Um, this is a global problem, actually, because when you democratize stuff, what you're doing is you're empowering the people with the most passion. Yeah, right. And so I don't, I don't want to rehearse this argument. People have heard from me the last three episodes, but you know, one of the problems it seems to me with Congress, at least on the Republican side, which I know better, is that there are a lot of congressmen who are vastly more terrified of being challenged in a primary than challenged in a general election. Part of that's the big sort. There's all sorts of reasons yeah. for it, and so. You get a lot of congressmen who are terrified of taking a tough vote because for the sort of the, the, the populist base, that's all the, that's all a challenger needs to beat you over the head with it, sure. right? And if the parties were a little more robust, sure. they say, hey, look, we have a long-term interest, interest in perpetuating democracy and we have a long-term interest in the health of our party and there's some public policy reforms that have to have a long-time horizon on them and so we're going to create space for our our elected officials to take tough votes, Yeah. But when you live in this environment, that sort of is sort of attenuated by the stuff that you're talking about, or amplified by the stuff you're talking about, where all the power accrues to the leadership in the house, what you're left with is a bunch of people who are whose political strategy is to simply a say they're team players, and b get on Fox and Friends or Morning Joe and and. And be pundits rather than actually yeah. be legislators.
0: Yeah, well, I think I think, uh, and the piece that really kind of influenced my thinking about this was uh, Yuval Levin. I think captured it. No, it was a great piece. His, yeah. What Was it Congress is weak because its members wanted it, want want it to be weak, right. and he gets at this sort of performative outrage. But I think I don't think I disagree with you necessarily. But maybe I just have a different experience. And again, caveat: this. I've only been in Congress for for two years, but that's, that's two years longer than I've been there. That, that's true. That's yeah. very true. But aren't you you probably in like some sort of secret Bilderberg Congress? Yeah, where you guys we made
1: Steve Gutenberg a star. <laughs> <That's true>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how many conspiracy theories I get every single day. But I'm, anyway. I'm um, sure, we can talk about that. Uh, I lost my train of thought now. Oh, okay. So just my experience for the last two years. So I don't know if the idea that the parties are are weak, at least in how they operate in D.C. Well, the
1: NRCC point is a good point counterpoint to my point right? yeah. because they yeah. actually are a powerful
0: institution. But I think you might be right about back in in districts, I mean, particularly when the national mood is all about outsiders and disruptors, maybe right. I benefited that in my campaign. I mean, I'd I never run for anything before. I was an outsider. I was a military guy. I was running against a longtime state senator who had, had a record. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would say the, 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 the Republican Party in Wisconsin- was very strong at the time. And that was just a reflection of the fact that Walker built an incredible yeah. infrastructure. Yeah, so certainly they controlled all the fora in which we debated. Um, you know, uh, the the we have a, a nomination process where if you get the endorsement of the, uh, the party, if you're a, a statewide candidate, you get access to all the party's resources. So um, I think there may be a little bit of diversity geographically, depending yep. on the unique characteristics of the party in, in various states. But certainly, my experience in D.C. is you sort of have two things going on. I think you have people that have that have either that have figured out they need to chain themselves to the mast of of the party, and you know their bread is buttered by the NRCC, and that's where the money comes from, and that's how they can advance in Congress. But then you have some who because perhaps they've grown disillusioned with the process or they've realized they can build a power base independent of Congress, just have adopted the role of bomb throwers and the Fox News Mm -hmm. folks, and it's all just about burning the system down. And so my theory is that some of the proposals I was putting out there would arrive at a more productive balance right now. I should say that there were some interesting counterarguments and also compromises that were proposed when I brought this up as an amendment last week after everyone sort of calmed down from being mad at me and forced them to vote, vote on this. One was basically to meet in the middle and allow the committees to nominate a A chairman, and that would you know come with two or three votes in the steering committee, so in the same way the speaker gets four votes in the steering committee, if you're the chosen you know nominee of the committee, you would come to your candidacy would come with a few votes, so there may be some ways in which we can meet so you no. could bring some of your people yeah. in kind of. yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah. I also think as it, as it pertains to money more broadly and the role that money is just is playing in a lot of these elections, one, a lot of it was wasted this time around it didn't have a big effect, and two, my hope is that. That industry will naturally be disrupted as people unplug. Uh, the majority of your your expenses in a campaign are going towards a TV buy, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time my team came to me and said, "Hey, we want to spend this much money on TV." I'm like, "Who's watching TV commercials?" Yeah, that's well, old people and they vote, right? Totally. And my district, uh, the demographics older. It, it's a it's a crude and blunt instrument, but it definitely is the most powerful political weapon you have in your arsenal, but I think there are ways in which that can naturally be disrupted over time, but... Well, also old people die. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I'm, I'm serious, right? And so, like, the generation... The generational shift.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I watch more TV than I should, but I, I know lots of people sort of your age who are cord cutters, right? Yeah. And so they're getting most of their stuff online, and it's... Fox will be... And look, I'm a Fox News contributor for the time being, and... Uh, but they're probably going to be the last to go of this old model, in, par- in part because their demographic is so old. And they yeah. they don't know how to sort of adjust to a more digital environment. And even Fox now with this Fox Nation thing is trying to get in
0: on that um, a little bit. I'm, I'm skeptical about it, but we'll see. Um, is, is there is there political advertising, I just don't know, that happens on podcasts? I mean, some of the views that, or the listens that podcasts get are insane relative to cable news. Has that... How does that work? I, I don't
1: know. I, yeah. I steer very clear of the business side of this, but I, I don't see any reason why there wouldn't be like... It's like Wayne's World. It's like Pepsi. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, like Ben Shapiro's podcast, you know, and my, my standard line about Ben is that, you know, in, in five years, I'm either going to be working for him or dead by his hand. Um, <laughs> is that, uh, I, my understanding is that his ad rates are are higher than Rush's. Now, Rush is a three-hour show with a lot more ads on it, but... Shapiro charges, like, real money because a lot of people listen to that thing. It would be make total sense to me if you were a politician to advertise on that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The question is, you get into some weird ethical stuff about whether or not, because most podcast ads, unless it's sort of NPR-y kind of stuff, are uh, read by the host. And I would be, like, very reluctant to read an ad for a politician, particularly in a in the studios of a 501C3, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, that would get complicated. So, I mean, there's some things that are going yeah. on with that. and uh, But, yeah, no, I, I think that's definitely, definitely going to be the future for a lot of this stuff. It's interesting you don't see more ads on Twitter, too, for politicians. Yeah. Maybe it's because Twitter ads suck, but... Um, yeah. But I don't know. But Facebook buys
0: are a big part of Facebook stuff, buys right? are big. I mean, the digital side is occupying a bigger yeah. uh, slice of the territory in campaigns. Campaign finance is one of the most complicated things. I yeah. mean, you just look at sort of the unintended consequences of well-meaning legislation recently. I mean, even something as simple as putting a cap of the amount of money you can give to an individual. Right. So right now, some an individual could give me twenty seven hundred dollars, fifty four hundred for mm-hmm. primary in general. Okay, so that makes because of journalistic ethics, I w- I won't be doing that. But go. Oh, on. okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only reason. <laughs> Nor would I dream of soliciting you <laughs> in, in this space. Um, but uh, so that makes some sense. You don't want someone just to give me two million dollars, but all that does is increase the amount of time people right. have to fundraise, right? Or it's it just further power to dark money and super PAC spending. And yeah, I- but that gets to my point, right? Mitch McConnell
1: and his floor speech, which is a fantastic floor speech. Against the McCain-Feinstein bill, he made this point: is that we're not getting money out of politics; we're getting money. We're getting the part. We're getting the money out of the parties. We're getting. Mm. The, and it used to be if you could, you could give money to the RNC or the DNC, right? But there's caps on that, and so instead, people are giving money to super PACs. Some of the super PACs, I think, do good work. I I think the Kochs have been unfairly maligned, and you know, I just wish they were Jewish so I could accuse <laughs> their critics of being anti-Semitic. Um, it is not rational to me that you should say, it's fine to give unlimited amounts of money to all these super PACs, which I'm not opposed to. Yeah. But you can't give an unlimited amount of money to a political party that actually represents, yeah. you know, so it's 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 creating middlemen, which creates a lot of mischief.
0: Yeah. It definitely creates a lot of mischief. I just wonder, in in sort of your universe where the parties were stronger, they had more financial weapons at their disposal, but they were still sort of doing what they do now, which is to say, be... Uncritical champions of, you know, I don't know, sort of the tribal moment that we're in. Yeah. So right? part of, part of the problem
1: with the, with the moment that we're in is like, yeah. as I say often, you know, forty years ago, if I asked you whether you were a liberal or a conservative, I'd have to ask a follow up question to find out if you were a Republican or a Democrat. Yeah. Right. And part of the problem is this polarization that we've got. We now have political ideological, political partisan ideological positions tightly overlay each other and basically serve as as almost kind of a secular religion for a lot of people. Definitely. And so now the parties are ideological enforcers in the ways that they used to be coalitions of interests. Mm-hmm. And that creates a completely different dynamic. And now, like if you read the RNC's Twitter feed, it is it is basically a a just a personal PR operation for the president of the United States. And there used to be a time when maybe the party would say, hey, you know, we don't have to rush to the defense of every inappropriate comment of one member of our party because yeah. we have a longer-term brand to consider. Yeah. And if you look at, like, young people, the Republican brand is in so real trouble. Yeah. and But the RNC now has, for all sorts of, you know, intriguing reasons, seems to have no interest in protecting its long-term brand, which is why I think... The RNC is going to be in real trouble in five years.
0: It'll be really interesting to see because so they commissioned the autopsy in 2012, which the basic argument or the conclusion was: you know, we have to reach out to, right. you know, uh, the Hispanic population to millennials. I forget exactly right. the conclusion, something to that effect. And then Trump came in and basically ignored that entirely in the coalition that he built and was very successful. Right? I mean, Trump won Wisconsin and no Republican had done that since Reagan right. in 84. And there were a lot of people that I, I just remember. I've told this story before. Um, not that anyone's like listening and following me. And, but, but I just remember this moment where I was knocking. Millions on, are listening. Yeah, yo, right this now. is this <laughs> <laughs> literally hundreds of people <laughs> are. Um, where I was knocking on doors in a very blue-collar part of my district. And I, I this lady opened the door, and I, I gave my whole spiel. Mike Gallagher, you know, this is why I'm running, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, go away. I, I hate Republicans. I've never voted for a Republican. I'm like, okay, okay. Sorry, sorry to waste your time. And then I was walking away, and... She yelled at me. She's like, but but I am voting for Donald Trump because he's going to shake things up. Mm-hmm. And that sense of wanting, you know, what I call kind of like the etch-a-sketch moment where we're just going to shake things up was very palpable in places like Wisconsin. I've now forgotten the point I was going to make in this beautiful vignette. It yeah, we was a perfectly about. fine vignette. Yeah. Well, thank um, you. Appreciate that. Yeah. Before we get off the process stuff, I do have just
1: one nuts and bolts question. I probably have more, but yeah. when you say that congressmen don't have time... To read legislation, I believe that I've met a lot of congressmen, um, and I'm not even sure that they have the faculties to read a lot of legislation. How dare, uh, you. How dare you, sir? <laughs> and uh, but all the legislation does get read by somebody, right? Yeah, right. Who are those people? Is it just? Like, do you have a staffer that does read every
0: piece of legislation? Yeah, well, so first of all, I, I try and read every legisl- – I, I have an advantage in that I don't have a life, so it makes uh-huh. it a little bit easier, despite my limited faculties that you allude to.
1: I wasn't I, – I just said some.
0: Yeah. I mean, you do have a whole legislative Do you team. deny that there are some members of Congress who – I do not deny it, sir. So. I do not deny it. Why uh, wise of you to keep me from finishing yeah. that <laughs> But uh, you, you have a very small legislative staff and it's task organized according to issue areas. But you know, for example I have one legislative staffer that's covering healthcare, education. Tribal issues. There's like 10 important issues, all of which are complex. I mean, healthcare alone is incredibly complex. So, you have limited resources. You have more resources if you're a more important member, and if you're a committee chair, you have access to a professional staff. I was a professional staffer on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for two years. You know, I had all of the Middle East, North Africa, and then counterterrorism globally under my portfolio. And even as a resident expert, I mean, that was a big, big portfolio, particularly given that we were sort of Arab Spring. My time there paralleled the negotiations over Iran's nuclear program. And so, yeah, I think there, there is a staff, but going back to the Gingrich reforms, uh, the, the size of the staff has decreased mm-hmm. uh, in recent decades at the same time that the power of unelected bureaucrats in the executive branch has increased. And that makes it very difficult um, right. for you know, people in Article 1 to decipher what's going on in Article 2.
1: So it's funny. Um, I listened to you on um, your fellow Cheeseheads podcast, uh, Charlie Sykes podcast. Ooh. And uh, he's got a great little niche podcast. And um, true story, you said something about how you talk to a smart person who had just told you that...
0: I think you know who this smart person is. Well, so the thing is,
1: so you said who who made this case that this whole idea that Congress and the executive branch are co-equal branches of government is actually a fairly novel uh, idea and that it actually comes out of the Nixon administration. I instantaneously knew who that was. Are
0: we allowed to out this smart
1: yeah, person? Yeah, well, it's Luke Thompson. It who, is Luke Thompson. Who was on the editor's podcast at National Review, which is the second most popular podcast at National <laughs> Review. And... Uh, Speaking of nerds, I mean he gets yeah, no, he, he gets into the weeds, I agree. Right. And his and 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 he sent me his PhD, a chapter from his PhD thesis on this and all that. And I spent a little time because I, I can nerd out with the best of them. I went into the JSTOR, which is his academic database, yeah. and I just did a quick and dirty search for the phrase coequal branch. And it's interesting. It, he does seem to be correct. And if you, I, search the, I search the Federal's papers for the phrase for the word coequal. and it's in there like eight times, but from what I can tell, almost every single time, it's referring to the House and the Senate as being coequal, not as the executive and the legislative being co-equal. And so this gets, I mean, this this is sort I of... I thought you
0: were going to say N equals 8 is not statistically significant, so that we can ignore I, that, but... So I, Luke is right. That's good, because I've been citing that. Yeah,
1: well, I think he's right, you yeah. know, and I, and it's the kind of thing, because he shares with me this abiding passion about how Congress, and it's a very Ben Sass kind of point, that Congress is the supreme branch. Yeah. You guys have the power to declare war, raise taxes, which the Founding Fathers thought was an important power. They started a war over it. A little, a it, little you bit, know? yeah. <laughs> um, you create all the courts, but the Supreme Court, right? You have... Complete authority over trade, though you jackwads gave it away. Uh, I should say your jackwad forebears, and um, uh, and and all you, you also do this thing called writing the laws, yeah, right. And so Steve Hayward, he always makes this point about how Don't forget
0: wh- about like letters of mark and reprisal and all that cool stuff. I well, mean, that is a recurring
1: theme on. Oh yes, yeah, so right? no, no.
0: So I that I'm, was not a plan. Oh, I, I, I,
1: I very much want to deal with. Uh, cyber hacking, and all that kind of stuff by... Re- cyber by, pirates. By bringing back <laughs> Letters of Mark, where we get a bunch of, like, skate rat, hoodie-wearing computer dorks, pull them off of Call of Duty or World of Warcraft, and say, you guys have carte blanche to screw with anyone yeah. who screws with us. Yeah. I think that would be awesome. I mean. but, so, I mean, I'm in. So, I'm very much with you on this larger point about how the... And, 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 and Sass's Kavanaugh thing yeah. got to the heart of it, yeah. right? Politics is supposed to happen basically in two places two two virtual spaces as it were in congress yeah. where people bring from their districts a sense of urgency about specific issues and between the parties mm-hmm. and instead these sort of informal institutions have converged where you know Fox News does more and MSNBC do more traditionally party work than the parties themselves. The Parties used to educate voters. They used to frame issues. They don't do that anymore. They're framed by these outside people, including people like me. I mean, I'm not saying it's evil. I mean, National Review, I'm very proud to be at National Review. We've been doing that for 50 years, 57 years or whatever it is. But the problems that we have, it seems to me, are only going to get worse if we don't have responsible institutions that were designed to deal with
0: politics actually deal with politics. I completely agree. What I don't know though, and I struggle with this intellectually, and I think this is kind of what Ben is talking about in his, his books. Not that I've read them. Mm. Uh, I mean the covers looked awesome though. No. That, uh yeah. uh Which is to say, ultimately, is this just reflecting uh, or is this is this downstream of other things? Right. And I think you got at this earlier, which is to say there's a natural sort happening. Right. There's data to suggest people are, you know, only moving next to people that share their worldview. Social media, the promise of social media turned out to do exactly the opposite. And so this is an argument I made last year at a big reform conference where people are into all these cool things like nonpartisan redistricting and then Citizens United, which is to say that, I mean, Congress is doing what it's always done, albeit imperfectly. Which reflecting what's happening in the broader society, and I don't have a fix for that. If ultimately the best way to drain the swamp is just to start with your own behavior and your own community and your own block, um, okay, uh, I understand that. But there's no gimmick that I can create for how Congress operates to get at that problem. No, but
1: you you, you can make it better, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you're in Definitely. your lane, right? I mean, yeah. This is one of things. This is one of these points I always make about the Catholic Church: is that the Catholic Church, which had its problems, yeah, <laughs> but uh, had the the institutional memory to know when that to sort of bend its rules or bend its institutions to deal with changing times and all of the rest and old institutions know how to do that. And it just seems to me that like figuring out a way. And I think this is why I'm very sympathetic to what you're calling for here. Right. I mean, it it won't fix everything, but it'll sort of on the Hippocratic oath model, it'll stop making things worse. Right. And if you actually give, people who run for office, the responsibility they claim they want, maybe they'll
0: live up to those responsibilities a little bit. Or at the very least, it will be an original mistake that we can learn from, as opposed to doing the same thing over and over again. Here's what I want, and it may be unachievable, and I'm open to alternative ways to get there than what I propose. I just want to, when I walk into the House floor, to have a sense that I'm kind of entering some sort of arena of intellectual combat, for lack of a better term, right, where we can have actual... Debates and right. there'll be some sort of shared set of facts, and we can have arguments, and we can, you know, maybe have a chance of succeeding or failing based on the merits of those arguments. But as I say in the piece, I mean, just turn on C-SPAN to sh- see that that is not happening right now. Now I'm not sure like prime ministers' times what we're we're after, but that could be cool. I think that'd be kind of yeah.
1: awesome, yeah. right? So, and I, I put my cards on the table. The very first piece I ever wrote for publication. I got published in on wow. uh, in the Wall Street Journal in 1992, and it was on why we need to expand the size of Congress
0: to um, about 7,000 people. <laughs> and um, Ben Dominich proposed this to me recently. Did he? did his podcast, and yeah. I just had never thought about that before. Explain to me the reasoning. How, how you think this would? Well, do you still do you still agree with your argument back then? Or? I certainly
1: think the congressional districts are too large. Yeah, and if you. The, I believe the only time that George Washington spoke up at the Constitutional Convention, because he was the president over it. Mm. Um, it a, Steve Hayward makes this point that you should pronounce president, president president to understand that he had sort of a standoffish role in domestic politics. He was presiding over things, right? Wow! But uh, so George Washington, the one time he spoke up was when they wanted to make congressional districts, I think someone will check me on this, 40,000 people he's like, that's way too big. And so they clawed it back to 30,000 people. And um, now I understand modern technology makes it you – know, back then the argument was even riding by horseback, you would not be able to see all your constituents and, you know, and all the rest. And so there's an argument that it can certainly be bigger than it is today. And if you had it at thirty thousand people today, you would have I don't know like nine thousand congressmen, which I admit, yeah. that's sort of like the imperial senate in Star Wars, right? You know, um, and uh, but you could basically the reason why we stuck at four thirty five in what nineteen twenty one something like that is basically I'm being glib, but basically the fire marshal said so, you know, and and uh, I kind of think that if if for example this what I think is mind bogglingly stupid argument about how Important it is that in legislative races the national popular vote went for one party or another, right? I mean it's just dumb, and it's particularly dumb on the Senate side. You know, you you, and you you catch smart people on Twitter all the time talking about gerrymandering affecting Senate races. You know, and you want to hit them over the head with a semi-frozen flounder. But all of these problems about gerrymandering are are solvable by just and and you don't need a constitutional amendment; just making the districts smaller very hard to do one of these, you know, uh, Jackson Pollock painting, you know, districts if it's, small. if it's smaller. Interesting. And so then you're actually much more connected to your actual district. And I don't know that it's, I mean, what the right number is. I don't know. I think mean, the New York Times recently said they want 700. That doesn't frighten me at all. You can see why people of your ilk would want not want this because it dilutes the prestige yeah. of their, yeah. their position. But Rather than doing all these crazy constitutional amendment things that people are talking about, including one that I like, like repealing the Seventeenth Amendment, just making them smaller would would solve a lot of a we lot Got of these rid of problems. prohibition
0: a long time ago, huh? I'm joking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now prohibition is one I'm uh, glad we got rid of. Um, all right, so uh, enough I, think, lo- well, I think,
0: I think, I think that makes or the logic makes sense to me. And if you had 700, let's just say a thousand people that were actually. I mean, uh, doing effective oversight that we're sort of uh, doing—deliberating with an eye towards solving problems, and that we're doing transparent and on-time budgeting, yeah, that'd be better. I mean, if you had a thousand people that were somehow all engaged in what we're doing now— No, that's right. And I just don't know enough about it to kind of game it out.
1: Um, All right, so let's just change gears because we're running short on time. I um, am—long story. Anyway, um, I got to go move a body, but— Other than this highfalutin stuff, what have been some of the most shocking things to you on the sort of human side about being a congressman? Like, what is the weirdest constituent calls that you've gotten, that kind of stuff? Or, you say, before you get a lot of conspiracy theories.
0: Yeah, yeah, a lot. So, one thing that happened recently at a town hall I did, uh, we had this whole process where, you know, people write their questions so that it doesn't become a, a circus. But immediately some guy, you know, hijacked it and was like, you were you were a member of the Council on Foreign Relations term membership for four years. And this is obviously a globalist conspiracy. And then why didn't you renew your membership? And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I, I, there was just this whole idea out there that C- answer the question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <CIFR> <laughs> controls the world or, or something. Uh, so you just get a lot a lot of stuff like that. Um, but uh Uh, I would say on the human side, there's been a lot of positive surprises, And I think I I was worried my piece came off too cynical. But ultimately, what I'm saying is that there are plenty of very smart, patriotic members of Congress who come there wanting to do the right thing. And I've been blown away by the quality of of the members of my class on both sides of the aisle. I have very good friends uh, that are Democrats. And I I genuinely I disagree with them on some stuff, but I don't think they're here actively trying to destroy the country. But uh, again, um, have you met any evil people? You don't have to give me names if you don't want to. Evil like, people. Like
1: people who actually live down to your expectations of what yeah. horrible people in Washington I'm
0: not going to give names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, l- listen, there's no shortage, too, of people that are just ruthlessly ambitious. I yeah. Mean, I kind of had an uncharitable throwaway joke at the Senate in the piece where I said, that, you know, I don't have an answer for the Senate where the fundamental problem seems to be that everyone wants to be president. Right. Uh, and I do think there is something to this idea that no one's actually interested in just doing – the job. like I, I agree with that entirely about the like, Senate. Like being, but being in the House should be an awesome responsibility, right? Right. You get to represent 730,000 people. I get to represent the Green Bay Packers in Congress. That's yeah. an awesome thing, although we lost this weekend. Um, and it's a socialist team, but that's... <laughs> oh, that's an interesting story, actually. That, that's more of a story about subsidiarity, Jonathan, uh, it is about socialism. Okay? Fair enough, fair enough. So it goes both ways. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm uh, with you. Um, uh, speaking about the founding, uh, 1919. Um, I lost my train of thought. Uh... Well, while you're doing that, yeah. my, my gripe against the Eagles yeah.
1: is that they are named after the Blue Eagle, the symbol of the fascistic National Recovery Administration of oh, the Roosevelt wow. administration. wow. Um, take that, Jake Tapper. We can get more into
0: that if you like. But, uh, um, well, to your point, yeah. So people in the House, you know, there's definitely a lot that are only interested in running for Senate, and then everyone in the Senate wants to run for president. Whereas if we just had people – found a way to force people to do the job that people elected them to do, we'd be in a better situation. That's one of the reasons I, li- I like
1: Cocaine Mitch right? Because he has no interest in running for president, Yeah, right? He's actually an institutionalist Sure, who wants to do the stuff of being a senator. Right?
0: Well, that's the second thing. I mean, you need people who are willing to jealously guard the equities of Article I, right? right? And who have some sort of respect for the institution or want to restore it. And ultimately, that's going to be a generational project. And it's going to require far more than what I lay out. I mean, there's a whole host of things. I do worry, though, that as Republicans, when we talk about that, we talk about draining the swamp or clawing back power from the... Um, evil administrative state, you know, we sort of say, we'll just pass the RAINS Act and that'll be enough. RAINS Act would be great. I, I think I voted for the RAINS Act. We passed it out of the House. But that's woefully insufficient to the task ahead of us. On the human side, though, every day I meet someone in Northeast Wisconsin that just blows me away. I mean, you do sort of fall in love again with the place that you're from in this sure, process. Because all, all I do every day is go around the district and I meet so many people. Yeah. You will know, think about your morning commute, how many nondescript gray buildings you pass and you never stop to think about what's going on in there. And there's yeah. so many different ways people have found to make a living or just reinvest in the community and that just renews your faith in the country. And the reservoirs of strength in this country are still very, very deep. Um, yeah. It makes it all the more frustrating that the gridlock and some of the dysfunction we see in D.C. acts as an impediment to you know unleashing them.
1: Yeah, although I got to say, Wisconsin has always impressed me. It's got a... I should talk to Tim Carney about this. He's got a book coming out on this stuff, but it's got much higher levels. Of, it seems to me there's much higher levels of, of social capital. The communities yeah. just seem stronger. And whenever you go there, whether you meet liberals or conservatives, you know there may be some passive-aggressive stuff and how nice they are, but at the same time, they tend to be more civil, and they, take, and they take politics really seriously. And Wisconsin has over the last – I mean, one of the more interesting political stories the last 15 years is how Wisconsin is punched above its weight yeah. on the national level, which brings me to – I don't want to – Until I got elected. Well, yeah, well, you know, yeah. you, 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 got quotas. Um, we can talk about Paul Ryan if you want, but um, – I kind of want to talk about like Dune
0: or like some sort of pop culture thing. Though.
1: We can do that in two yeah. seconds. What is your theory of why Scott Walker lost?
0: Uh, Well, I think it's very hard to get elected three terms uh, in Wisconsin. And I think in part because of Walker's success, both politically and in terms of policy and economically. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, unemployment below 3%. I mean, it was the results were there. There was a lot of Republicans in Wisconsin who had talked themselves into believing that the state was naturally trending red, which is just not the case if you look at Wisconsin's history. And add on to the fact that we just got crushed in suburban areas. Um, And so I think it was a little bit of... Uh, not fatigue, but a little bit of uh, what's the right word? Not apathy, but uh, I don't know. I, I thought he was going to pull it out a- at the end, and it was a very, very narrow margin. But I think you know, maybe we got a little bit of com- a little bit complacent. Yeah, I mean,
1: uh, I- I'm friends with Michael Grebbo. A- oh, he's great. I- he's like
0: the grand old man of Wisconsin. He's, he's one of my favorite people. Fantastic.
1: And um, and so I was out there for an event at the Wisconsin Institute of Law and Liberty. Yeah. And ta- just you know, not quite reporting, but just talking to a lot of people about that race and. Three, four different people, independent of each other, talked about the Walker fatigue issue, and they're like, "Walker's got these great ads," but and they have these people doing personal testimonials about how they got a new job and retraining and all this kind of stuff. And at the end, Walker would walk on, and
0: people were like, "Ah, I just don't want to see him." Interesting, you know. And so, I think it's probably both. I think it's maybe the presidential race, you know, was part of it. Uh, I, I think um, the fact that he ran. Um- but I also think, I mean, Republicans across the country got clobbered on yeah. health care, right? Right. I mean, that the pre-existing condition stuffs. I mean, and these attacks were very vile, and there was a ton of disinformation. I mean, in, in the district just to the south of mine, you had a Democrat running an ad effectively saying that, you know, one of my Republican colleagues wanted to kill small children. I mean, mm-hmm. but that stuff really left a mark. And I do worry right now that it's not enough for Republicans to just sit back and say, hey, look, the Democrats are going off the reservation with single-payer health care, Medicare for all. We can just sit back and watch them screw it up. We need to have a positive alternative vision right. for the future of healthcare. And to your point about entitlements, there's no way to make the math work if you want to continue investing in the military. Right. Make an investment in infrastructure, all the nice things we want to have until you find a way to control health care costs. In fact, it's crowding out a lot of military spending, right. or at least the way dollars are spent within the Pentagon. Right now, we're spending 18% of our GDP on health care. And so uh, I think, in the same way, it became very easy for us under Barack Obama just to inveigh against the evils of Obamacare without doing the mental, right. burning the mental calories to come up with a, understand our alternative and convey it in simple fashion to the American people. Right now, we need to be thinking about what the next phase of health care is in this country, so I think that that definitely was felt in, in Wisconsin, um, where we actually have some of the best health care. In fact, the best health care outcomes in the country last year, if you believe some of the way that's measured.
1: Well, uh, yeah. you know, it's all that all that paleo diet stuff is proving that the Wisconsin Wisco, diet, Wisco Paleo, yeah, it's
0: yeah. A diet that I've actually invented and trademarked. So, really, it's just all meat and cheese uh-huh. and beer.
1: See, the beer is the problem. Yes, though, right. <laughs> you know. Right. Um, so, all right. So you said before you have no life and that you want to talk about dune
0: yeah my knowledge of dune is very shallow that's fine we don't stand in for a topic um what um that actually probably shows you how little i know about pop culture dune is my reference point (laughs) it's hot among the kids right now what uh
1: so when you're not doing uh the important work of statecraft what are you doing
0: yeah so i like uh i just like getting outside i'm a kind of big run around fitness kind of guy outside and you know, I am a. As much as I like to make fun of Ben Sass, I am a card-carrying nerd and mm-hmm. love to read, particularly about early Cold War history. And then, uh, whenever I have time, just hanging out with my friends and family and trying. They keep, they're the ones that keep me honest at the end of the day. And what are your living conditions here? My living conditions here. I was uh, for the most part of my first term. I was living in my office. I was uh-huh. one of those people with a little cot, and I would just the gym was right below me, and I'd shower there and work out there i've recently moved into a house with a bunch of other members so it's like a a bad sitcom basically so
1: it'd be great i mean didn't they try that on amazon there was some bad yeah
0: alpha house yeah 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 Yeah. Yeah. john goodman i have i have no i don't have tv i don't have cable and i don't have netflix so Uh i'm limited solely to amazon prime and what i can watch and so my knowledge of the amazon prime universe is very 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 vast yes
1: so this is a problem I had with Sass. I mean, Sass and I get along so well, and we agree on so much. He's kind of my spirit animal and all these things. But, like, as far as I can tell, he's utterly clueless about popular culture stuff. <laughs> and, you know, other, you know, and, and, like, he he dropped some, like, American League baseball joke on me that just flew over my head. And he looked at me like, what was wrong with, you know, what's wrong with you? Um
0: well, I do try and keep my Sundays free to go to the chapel of the Packers. I yeah. uh-huh. end up actually getting to go to a lot of games, and my family's been Packer, game, Packer fans for a long time. So that's just – that's a really – Shocking that a I know. congressman from the district can land Indeed. tickets whenever he wants. Although our, our season our season is over right now, unfortunately. But uh, wait, so in addition to your, um, your Letters of Mark mm-hmm. proposal, what are the other sort of half-baked ideas, what I would call sort of like a two-beer idea that you wouldn't feel comfortable – proposing it, unless you had had two beers. But you secretly believe it's a good idea.
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, Well, okay. i have already talked about expanding the House of of Representatives, repealing the 17th Amendment. Getting to your point, I would be very open to a constitutional amendment that says you cannot run for the Senate. You cannot run for the presidency from the Senate unless you, at minimum, have fulfilled one term and maybe two terms. I'm in on that. Uh, I mean, Obama hit the ground and immediately started running for president. Yeah, um, Ted Cruz has been running for president for quite a while. Elizabeth Warren's running for president. Bernie Sanders. I mean, Bernie Sanders has been around for a while, but you know, he's 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 running for president or commissar or whatever it is, right? And um, uh, and I think that's a real problem in the Senate is you get all these guys who, uh, who just simply are looking at the, as a stepping stone. Yeah. And you know, it, it's interesting. I think until two thousand eight. We had never, I want to say never, elected a senator directly from the Senate to the presidency. Interesting. I think that's right. Um, someone will immediately correct me on Twitter about this. But I remember, at least it had been a very long time.
0: Um, wait, wait, say that again. We n- never elected...
1: At least in the 20th century, let's oh. put it there. I think maybe it's true in 1932, but we can look it up. It was extremely... Okay.
0: Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Okay,
1: JFK. Okay, so JFK was like maybe the one in the 20th century. Yeah. And again, it was another one of these races where you had two senators running against each other, so you had no choice, right? Yeah. So in 2008, you had McCain and uh, that Obama guy running against each other, so it was it was a done deal. And historically, there was always this thing about senators being too legislative to run for president. Yeah. Um, I remember one of my favorite moments was – and Orrin Hatch, I think, is a wonderful – Patriotic, decent guy. But I remember when he was running for president uh, in 84, 88, something, or 92, what, a long time ago. And they were talking about the topic of leadership came up. And Orrin Hatch said, You want leadership? You want to talk about leadership? I passed the continuing resolution on the omnibus, blah, you know, and just ran through this like, crazy mishmash of of, of, of yeah. legislative stuff that yeah. just, for the normal person, didn't seem like what they wanted in a president, right? So uh, that would be one.
0: Um, gosh, um, that's funny. Um, Whoever, by the way, whoever's is running his Twitter account is very is great. Funny, yeah, yeah. No, it's gosh, really good. That's funny. I, I, it's
1: one of the things that.
0: Uh, oh, I did, By the way, I didn't mean to distract from our very important pop culture uh, conversation. What is your diet of like pop culture? What do you do for? Oh,
1: pop? I watch a lot of crap. Uh, I don't always like crap, but I, I watch a lot of. Pop you
0: like culture. a music person too. Not as much as I like as going used to, be. to concerts, that's like my yeah. once a month I try and See, go.
1: See, my my uh, it's not I don't know if it's a agoraphobia or misanthropy, but I don't like being around enthusiastic people. <laughs> so concerts kind of freak me out when everybody's really into it and I'm looking around and I was like, you know, this is this is how you, you know, you these these people are getting ready to storm the citadel. But I watch it's on, I'm sorry, it's on Netflix. Yeah. Um I know that on your salary the 9.99 a month is just a, it's a, deal a lot right. to ask. But there's a great show called um, The Last Kingdom about 9th ninth, ninth century. I've England. read the books. Yeah, yeah, I love great. it. Uhtred. Yeah, Uhtred, uh, son I'm, of Uhtred. I'm all in. Yeah, oh no, I read, the,
0: read you, the the three. I don't know if there's more, but I've
1: the show was great. I keep meaning to go to the books. I turned David French on to it, and he, I think, Saxon tales. Yeah, no, yes. it's, it's really really good. There's this great line, like the third episode of the third season, where the king of Mercia kills one of his subjects who tells him something he doesn't want to hear, and his advisor says my lord you can't just wantonly murder your subjects this is the ninth century you know
0: <laughs> which i thought was awesome um amazing serious um
1: a uh, lot of sci-fi stuff um
0: what's your top like your top five tv series ever ever yeah let's get into that
1: uh Okay. Breaking Bad, I think okay. is the. I've never watched it. I okay. feel like this is a big. I, and that might be on Prime. Um, um, Prime. I I wrote a cover story for National Review saying it was the greatest TV show of all time. Okay. Um, I'm totally willing to defer to people who think The Wire is better. I recently rewatched it, and Wire was yeah. great. Wire's great, and that is on Amazon Prime. Um, I think Sopranos is very strong. I love Deadwood.
0: Deadwood uh, is one would be in my top five.
1: Um, I think that I, I've been thinking about going back and watching it like NYPD Blue to see yeah. how well it stands up but it was certainly hugely important in the evolution yeah. of television you know the narrative this, arc stuff
0: this is less serious but also a deadwood actor justified i thought fx i thought was an amazing show justified was a great show
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it kind of lost it in its last season, I thought. But the first, like, three seasons were among the best
0: This is a ever. question I want to ask that only your audience could answer, which is to say, I think in the first or second episode of Deadwood, the doc, I forget his name, yeah. says something about, I think it's like, I've seen and as much problems come from those who thought, who were doing bad as those who thought they were justified. And I thought that that's how they got the title for the show, Justified, from that quote from Deadwood. So... Super fans of Jonah Goldberg, tell me if there's a crossover from the Deadwood universe to the showrunner for Justified, because the books that Justified's based on are not called Justified.
1: I thought it was just basically uh, Fire in the Hole. Fire in the Hole like, was like a short yeah. story. Yeah, right? exactly, Wasn't it? exactly. Not Elmore Leonard. Was it? I think it was Elmore, yeah, Elmore. Yeah. yeah.
0: About Luther. You ever watched Luther? Love Luther. Oh, Luther. Luther was great. He's got to be the
1: next Bond. That's the only. Solution. I think they, he's been ruled out. Oh. And uh, going the way the culture is going, I think you know. The next Bond is going to have to identify as a woman. I don't know if it has to be a woman biologically, but, you know. Um, what else? Uh, there's a great sci-fi show um, called The Expanse.
0: Oh, I've watched a few episodes. Yeah,
1: which I really like just because yeah. of the, the sort of the realism of it was really, really cool.
0: I was worried that it would kind of leave me at like Battlestar Galactica, which I remember I was in Quantico and a uh. buddy of mine when we were training basic officer basic school had like the DVDs and yeah. it was great and then the ending totally it was awful. Sucked.
1: I wrote a piece for Commentary Magazine about this about how the first like 3 seasons were among the best television shows ever made of Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. And then in part because first of all they lied when they said the Cylons have a plan. They had no idea. Yeah. You know like, every every episode for the first 3 seasons begins and they have a plan. It turns out whether they did or not the writers didn't and they had no idea how to finish the thing. Yeah. But also, they got so caught up in doing this rip-from-the-headlines stuff about the Iraq War that they just started caving into politics for it. And, you know, you had so these weird justifications for suicide bombers on it. And so the last, whatever, two seasons, I thought were horribly politicized. It's sort of like my gripe against the Star Wars movie where young uh, Anakin, right, slash Darth Vader, says... If you're
2: not with me... Then you're my enemy. Mm
1: -hmm. And Obi-Wan Kenobi says...
2: Only a Sith deals in
0: absolutes.
1: Right? The line was a direct reference to George W. Bush about this sort of, you know, either you're with us or you're with them kind of thing. But the whole moral universe, the whole theological universe of Star Wars was based on absolutes, this fight between the light side and the dark side. And they threw all of that away just to get this little chintzy cheap shot in at Bush.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um... Uh gosh. I didn't know we were gonna get into it. I I kinda like this, you know. I keep telling people they can interview me on this podcast and they yeah. never
0: listen. well same question on movies. Um um, they don't, and they don't have to be serious like if you're gonna say uh, Citizen Kane or something like that. Yeah, I think Yeah, I think Citizen Kane's
1: overrated. Um yeah, I think I've never seen it. There. Boom. Oh, no, no, it's worth seeing, but yeah. and it's part of the problem, it's like listening to the Beatles, right? Yeah. Sorry, Jack, Jack's freaking out.
0: Jack hates Jack's loves the Beatles.
1: No, but the Beatles are the Beatles are legitimately yeah. great. Yeah, I'm not I disputing yourself, that. Man. But, all,
0: like, later generations, they... Um, By the way, the, list, the listeners will not know the, the violent reaction Jack just Yeah, had. no, Jack, Jack... Got, it was yeah. a spasmodic... It was bad. Yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> but the part of the problem is, is that they were so revolutionary that so many people copied a lot of their stuff that you don't appreciate some of the technical things. Yeah. Uh, Citizen Kane invented all sorts of crazy stuff about camera angles and yeah. narrative arc and all that kind of stuff that we now just sort of take for granted so we don't... Actually, it, it, for the normal viewer, you just think, oh, that's how movies are made, when in reality, it was, like, really path-breaking at the time. I, I hate definitive lists, but I, I have problems with
0: it if you don't what have— movie, What movie do you think you've watched the most? I have, I have like—so, when I deployed, I only had, like, one movie on uh-huh. my computer— Weekend of Bernice, uh, (laughs) too? Speaking of the Senate. uh, And that was Tombstone. And Tombstone is like the most watchable movie. It's very watchable. I agree. I agree. Uh, A great movie, in fact.
1: I find those kinds of movies, the movie that you're hung over on the couch and you watch and you're perfectly happy to watch, but you're also perfectly happy to fall asleep because you've seen it so many times. (laughs) Red Dawn is like that. I would argue Tombstone is like that. I just will say, just get out. Godfather and Godfather 2 are... Sort of like Godfather, Godfather 2 and Animal House are these movies that if you are changing channels and you accidentally stumble on it, it's very hard to get away, right? Because you just, each scene, you're like, oh, I'll just watch this scene and then the next scene's awesome and you just sort of stay stuck with it. Lawrence of Arabia, I think, is a legit great, great movie. Sure.
0: Hot take. Most rewatchable movie of the last 10 years, maybe five, is Creed. Boom. I said it.
1: It's defensible. I have to see it again to make sure that's so right. But yeah, it's no, so but it's good. It's so good. It's
0: good. And I did see Creed 2 with my mom on Thanksgiving Day. How was it? It was good. It wasn't as good as Creed, you know, Creed Creed. Yeah. It was good. Drago was actually very good. The amount of lines that, uh, what's his name, had in it. Dolph uh, Lundgren. Dolph Lundgren yeah, yeah. had in it. Was, was astounding. Like, a lot of the emotional heart of the movie actually comes from Drago and his son.
1: You know, Dolph Lundgren has, like, a degree in chemical Superstar engineering guy. from MIT or something. Yeah, yeah, like that.
0: <laughs> that's right, that's right. Um,
1: uh, I, I will make the case that among the most rewatchable movies that I love that doesn't get the respect it deserves is Digstown.
0: Interesting, never seen it. It's
1: a long con, I love long con movies. You know, long con movies, heist movies, love them. Interesting. Um, I actually will make the case that Ocean's Eleven is actually really rewatchable.
0: Oh, definitely rewatchable.
1: Uh, so, do you like in your in your group house? Do you guys like sit around complaining about who ate your peanut butter and watching movies? Uh, it's amazing
0: how little we actually see each other. Uh huh. I mean, because the senators are doing their thing, and you know, everyone's on a crazy, crazy schedule. So,
1: so you have senators in your house too? We do who yeah. who are the? Are love love if I'm allowed to okay. disclose
0: all right. the identities of? Fair enough. These are senators; they're very important people. How are they as roommates? Uh, good. I mean, we all kind of have our own rooms and. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, we have a, a triple bunk bed, or an hatch. No, it's it's good. Does so Ben
1: Sasse have like a race car
0: bed. Yes, yeah, so we talk over CB radios every night. Yeah, he reads me to Tocqueville quotes. Do you guys market. put like,
1: like post it notes on stuff in your fridge and that kind of stuff? There's a little bit of that going on. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. a little bit of that going on. But okay, wait, I want to uh, run my my half baked ideas. But okay, I know okay. we're running out of time, and I'm I'm talking to you. No, no, late. it's fun. This is fun. Okay, so I'm on board with the letters of Mark uh-huh. Ryl. Here's most of mine are airport related because I spend half my life in an airport these days, particularly uh-huh. in the seventh layer of hell known as O'Hare Airport. Uh-huh. The Marine Corps should pay for Marine Corps branded pull-up bars at every airport gate around the country. So when you're waiting for your flight, you just knock out a set of pull-ups, uh-huh. and I've solved the Marine Corps recruiting problem and your healthcare crisis in one fell swoop. I like it. I like it right there.
1: Boom. And if you do the requisite number of pull-ups, you can get upgraded to an
0: economy plus seat. I love that. Well, that gets to the second thing. Incentives matter. Incentives do matter. So I'm one of these people, I will only take something that can fit underneath the seat. Mm -hmm. That's just a point of pride with me, and I want a little bit of a reward for that, Yeah, I think. And conversely, I want punishment for people in the airport that stand on the left side of the moving walkway when they should be walking. Like Maybe a little shock or Uh like a cartoon... Spring that throws them into, like, a, a bungee pit or a ball pit or something.
1: One of my greatest peeves and one of the things that's most likely to elicit wanton violence from me yeah. are people who get off down escalators and then stop and look around rather than move out of the way. I mean, these people need to be weeded out of the gene pool. But that's that's <laughs> another, another issue.
0: Okay. So uh, let's talk about Greenland. Okay. Greenland, about 22% the size of the United States. Uh-huh. It's been a while since we've increased the size of the United States. I like it. It has a lot of rare earths, Uh natural gas, oil. The Chinese are very active in Greenland right now because Uh it's a strategic point relative to the Arctic. Uh It's owned by the Danes. So the alt-right would love this, right? You know, you're increasing the... Puritan,
1: Aryan, Viking stock, right? Because they're all like I think about it in those terms. Norse, you know, mythology nuts, right? Or
0: pagans make America bigger. Yeah, yeah I, I, that's I'm, right. I'm okay with that. Okay, so yeah. Greenland, I, just come to some sort of arrangement with the Danes and the indigenous people in Greenland as to what we could do there. Um, there are parts of Canada we could take too. Well, that that's another thing. Uh, some sort of non-lethal dueling to settle international disputes, right? Uh-huh. Uh, Trudeau, I think, sort of famously. Uh, came to prominence by boxing a a conservative in Canada who had called him out. And no one thought Trudeau was going to win because he was kind of a pretty boy. And then he beat this guy totally. Uh And he he trained and worked hard. And so maybe this is the Creed II influence in me right now. Yeah,
1: this all might be marine privilege that you're (laughs) kind of invoking here. So I think you could take Nancy Pelosi in a fight. (laughs) (laughs) Those are the best ones I got. Right? I like right. it. I like yeah. it. I, 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 you know, we should do a whole podcast on just crazy... Half-baked ideas. Half-baked ideas. I like yeah. it. Gosh, now I feel like I have so many more that I'm not thinking of right now. <laughs> um, Gallagher, remember the stand-up comedian? Yeah, my uh, uncle. Yeah. R- I'm joking. <laughs> um, uh, he Love this, you, Ankh. He had this great idea yeah. of giving everybody giant suction cup guns. Remember like when you were a kid, you had the suction cup gun? That yeah, yeah, yeah. He wanted like toilet plunger-sized ones with a flag hanging down saying asshole on it. So, like, if you got cut off in traffic, you would shoot the car and it would stick to the side of the door. And a cop, if he saw more than three A-hole stickers
0: on the side of a car, he could just give you a ticket for being an A-hole. I love that. that So, a related idea that I had while I was in New York recently. Uh, So, one of the most infuriating things you can do and selfish things you can do is to block the box, right? Yes. There was this big campaign to block the box. So, we got all these traffic cops everywhere in cities like New York. Why not just give them, a, like, a canister of red spray paint? Mm-hmm. And if they see people blocking the box, they just walk up there and put a little scarlet B on the car. And so you're driving around. Everyone knows that you're the guy who blocked the box. And you'd have to pay to get the paint job to go over it. That, I mean, that's a flawless idea.
1: Right? I, I like it. I, so. More social stigma, right? There's a <laughs> scarlet letter kind of idea of traffic control. I like it. Um Oh, so if we're going to go this way, uh, we won't even get into my volcano Lansing ideas, which I've been <laughs> nourishing for decades. You know, there's a lot of talk, Oren Cass has this book about the importance of work, right? But there's always this problem of creating make work um, because work has to be fulfilling and all the rest. If people really care about the global warming aspect of the climate change stuff, I would love for either a nationwide system of tunnels, kind of like the Big Dig, or... Uh, i 've had engineers explain to me how unbelievably expensive that would be, or because i 'm a huge softie when it comes to animals, and I hate seeing roadkill and stuff, if you could have like a giant four lane enclosed express highway right that only that, that, that trucks had to use right because they 're working they don 't need to have a view of anything, and that would and then you could put sort of carbon scrubbers in it <laughs> that would suck out all the exhaust. And also, it would provide a natural mound across the country, sort of like the mound that comes when Bugs Bunny digs for, to Albuquerque, <laughs> that animals could cross without getting hit by uh, oncoming traffic.
0: Wow. That is a bold idea right there.
1: And, you know, allegedly, if it, if it reduces our emissions and saves animals, the left would add a lot of buy-in. It creates a lot of jobs.
0: Jonah 2020. That, yeah. Right there. That's the that's the idea.
1: That's um, the Gosh, but I, I feel like I have so many more. You know, my yeah. dad's big thing... When I was a little kid, he used to tell me that the cure for all of our population and environmental problems was to just simply shrink people.
0: <laughs> Wasn't that a Matt Damon? Movie? Yeah, they made,
1: they kind of ruined this idea, yeah. which I've been mulling for yeah. a
0: long, long time. Um, okay, so I so we're running out of time, and I want to selfishly ask you this: mm-hmm. for we have a you know a new crop of members of Congress coming in. I think they're doing orientation right now. A lot of really, a lot of
1: trust falls. A lot of trust that falls. Kind of yeah, that's that's right. Step forward if this. If your privilege doesn't apply kind of thing. That's
0: right. Um, What – if you could mandate certain reading they would have to do, sort Mm -hmm. of – besides your own book, you're not allowed to say that. Uh What do you think would be most useful for incoming members of Congress to read? I hate to put you on the spot like this. The tables have turned.
1: Yeah. um,
0: You know, I'm not – for
1: this might seem shameless, but I actually think uh, Ben's book Them would be useful. I think if you want to go old you school... You get a
0: portion of the, the proceeds. I mean, let's be yeah. honest about that. That
1: guy owes me so much already. <laughs> if you want to go old school with the same sort of argument, you know, the, the sociologist who saw all of this decades ago was, was Robert Nisbet, uh, who wrote a book called Quest for Community. Interesting. Gosh, what else? There's a great book called... Um, and this is a very ideological thing, so people won't like it. A guy named Arthur E. Kirk wrote a book called The Decline of Liberalism in America. Which kind of cuts across a whole bunch of ideological points of view. He was like a classical liberal and he was complaining about the rise of the garrison state and the, you know, sort of the, which led to like the new deal stuff. Cause I'm, a, I'm, I'm, you know, if we're talking about sort of semis, not quite half baked, you know, I'm a big believer in pushing as much power down to the most local level possible Yeah, because the stuff that Washington is supposed to handle are supposed to be national issues, not every issue. Yeah. So that would be a good book. Um, Charles Murray's what it means to be a libertarian.
0: Hmm. Golly. Uh, da, 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 da. Were you on the, the Charles Murray um, um, I'm just blanking on the his big policy idea that the liberals love. Oh, the universal yeah, basic universal income? Basic, basic income. Yeah.
1: It's one of those ideas I keep going back and forth on. Um, the problem is for liberals, and I've had this conversation with Charles a million times. Um, the problem was mm-hmm. with, with, liber- with The way Charles proposes it, it's an either or thing. Replaces We're getting rid of the welfare market. state yeah. and giving people guaranteed income. And I think he it's a useful thought experiment, but in reality, the sort of new class technocratic managerial class administrative state people will never go along with that because that will put them out of business and they have too much of a sort of social engineering mindset to begin with. And so they want it as a both and, and we can't afford that. But the other part of it, which I'm, I'm increasingly skeptical of, is that Work is really, really important, and we don't understand how, like, having meaningful work yeah. gives people a sense of meaning and belonging and a feel- sense of feeling needed. And in an era where we're heading into where virtual reality is going to get really, really good and and drugs are going to get really, really good, I mean, I mean that seriously in sort of an Algis Huxley kind of way, yeah. giving people enough income that they can pay for their groceries and then just play video games for the rest of their lives... I'm not sure is a great idea. I'm much more sympathetic to the sort of Orrin Cass stuff, which I, I haven't read the book yet, but I've been following the debate about figuring out a ways to emphasize the need for work, work requirements, but it can't be make work. It's got to be important stuff like building these underground tunnels. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
0: That's right. Uh, um... Gosh, I feel like... And I, installing the pull-up bars.
1: And the, and the pull-up bars, you know. Um, but, you know, look, if you, if you send stuff back down to the most local level possible, you let different communities have the freedom to come up with weird stuff like that. Totally. You know, and I'm totally into that. Yeah. I don't know. Um, so you think you're going to stay in Congress?
0: Uh, well, I'm there for another two years. Yeah. Um, we'll see. I, I This is not something that I envision as a, a career. I, I just don't think that's the model the framers had in mind. Um, so – but and I genuinely – I know this is going to sound like a canned answer – I tr- to the extent that's humanly possible, I try not to sort of think about what the next move is for the reasons we talked about right. before. If I become one of these people that's only interested in, you know, uh, gaming out how I can get somewhere else, then I'm not doing my job. And right. this is actually, if you're intellectually curious, notwithstanding the frustrations I laid out in my piece, this can be a great job. I mean, I learn something new every single day. And yeah. a lot of what I learn does come from the bottom up wisdom of people in Northeast Wisconsin. Yeah. I mean, you just. It it can be a very gratifying experience, and so my that doesn't mean I'm actually less ambitious. In some ways, it means I'm more. I I want to be the best member of the House that I you know possibly can be. That sort of devolved into a cheesy army. No, no, no like that's, that's that's
1: fine. I mean, I mean, and and and, yeah. and you know, we both acknowledge that if we could have trials by combat for like committees, yeah. <laughs> that would be cool too, that's right? right? That's right. Um. Yeah. Right, will you come back on the podcast? I would be honored to come because I, I have a right. sense that there are yeah. people who are going to want to hear you on the podcast again. I I know my listenership a little bit.
0: You know, it would be great if we could get a if we could get a Thompson. Pot, we bring Luke Thompson into the mix. I mean, that would be that would be interesting. That would be good. Um, I don't know if he's under exclusive contract elsewhere.
1: No, no, no. We could get. I don't know how often he's in Washington. You know, because yeah. he's he's like really one of these guys who's actually running everything secretly. Oh yeah, and he and if you follow his Twitter feed, you'll know. That he actually has, uh, what do you call a group of, a clouder as a group of cats, right? Um, sort of murder of crows, clouder of cats. I think that's right. What? Um, he has got like six <laughs> absurd James Bond villain cats that he like dresses up in sweaters and stuff. It's all very, very. I strange. did not know this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Rick yeah, yeah. Thompson. He's it's, a cat
0: person. He's,
1: well, I. I I think he's in love. Oh. And ah, the, the cats mistake. were part of the deal. Love me, love my cat kind ah, of. Ah. That's God my sake. understanding. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. But it's like six cats, which is, you know, at least four yeah. too many. Yeah. Um, Rescue cats? Yeah. No, these are too exotic looking. Okay. Yeah. You know? I mean, this is like Dr. Evil's cat before it lost all the hair kind of cats. Um, and actually, maybe we can link to it in the show notes. He has this great thing on Twitter that he did over Thanksgiving of dressing up. One of his cats like pajama boy from the Obamacare ad and had some line about how, you know, stay in, lap up milk get enro- enrolled or something like that. So, uh,
0: but, no, but we should have him on and... Uh, I think that the the people really want to go deeper into the Amazon Prime universe with me. I think that's That's, right. that's what they're crying out
1: for. Oh, well, I knew that, and we were planning some of that stuff <laughs> for the end of the year, like best TV shows and all that. I just didn't think that the representative from the 8th District of Wisconsin would be in the bullpen for something like that. Well, we can, keep, we can keep me in it. mind. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. I appreciate well, it. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you, sir. <laughs>
2: Okay, well, both Jonah and Mike Gallagher have left the building and Jonah has left it to me for some reason to conclude this podcast. So, I mean, there's a lot of things I could say, uh, but tact is precluding me from saying some of them, perhaps. Uh, So in lieu of that, I will simply make this comment. Mike Gallagher is officially the youngest guest, uh, not counting myself, that we've had on the show. He is two weeks younger than... ...than Kristen Soltis Anderson. And unless I'm forgetting anyone uh, conspicuously... ...unless, like, Michael Brennan Doherty is younger than than, uh, Gallagher... ...which he may be. I'd say they're about the same age. Uh, So I could be wrong about this, but I think I'm right. Um, So congrats. Although, again, he loses the title to me. Uh, I I thought that was an interesting episode. I didn't expect all that pop culture talk, and neither did... I don't think anyone expected it, but... The people got it anyway. This podcast is all about getting what people don't expect. Uh, nobody And nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition, so just always be on the lookout for it. Uh, so, in conclusion, that's a great way to start the final paragraph of a speech or a paper, although kind of cheesy and canned, but cheesy and canned are what this podcast is all about. Uh, in conclusion, please uh, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, what have you, um, review us in those places, keep us away from all the niche podcasts, like, uh, well, I won't even mention them because I've forgotten their names. They're so forgettable. Uh, and in, perhaps of the utmost importance, let's talk about NR Plus. And I feel very strange talking, reading this copy, but you know what? I feel strange every day anyway, so just going to embrace it as part of a unique and multifaceted life that I live. We, usually Jonah and National Review staff, like to say NR Plus is a lot more than a digital subscription, and it truly is. When you become an NR Plus member, you of course get unlimited access to the National Review digital magazine. That means you don't get the paywall when you want to read National Review magazine on your computer or mobile device, that ominous paywall. Trump can't get his wall built, but National Review has built theirs. But you can get around it. With NR Plus, you can get total access to the latest issue and to all the issues in our 10-year archive, or in their 10-year archive, I guess. Although I have written for National Review before, so I guess I sort of have a sense of community with them. But NR Plus is more than a digital subscription. It really is a membership. Because when you join NR Plus, you get access to our members-only Facebook group, which is a place where you and other NR Plus members can share your thoughts with all of the editors and writers over at National Review. It's a great perk for everyone involved. You get to speak to your mind to all of them at National Review. The copy says us, but I'm only tangentially part of National Review. And they, again, the copy says we, get important feedback from their <laughs> most dedicated readers. It's a great deal. All right, it's, it's getting kind of tiresome, I'm sure, for me to uh, continue to change the pronouns. But I'm going to keep doing that. We're all about pronouns these days. Uh, they also have started conference calls featuring NR writers, editors, and special guests. Only NR Plus members get the call info, and these are really great conversations that you won't want to miss. No need to change the pronoun there. There's also commenting, and as everyone knows, the internet comment world is usually a sewer. But on NR Plus, it is not the case, because only NR Plus members can comment on the site, which makes for a much more elevated commenting experience, to say the least. And Now, for some reason, the copy elevated was in quotation marks. I don't think those were necessary. I think it should have been underlined. Or maybe bolded, um, and get this: when you join NR Plus, I hope you heard the paper turning over, and are logged into the site, you will see up to ninety percent fewer ads on the site. In particular, you will see zero ads within articles. So when you're reading what you came to the site to read, your distractions will be minimized, except for the distractions that you bring to the reading of the article in your own brain. We can't do anything about those, or they can't do anything about those. I guess I can't. I can say we because I'm part of a theoretical we. Of people trying to distract you less uh, There's a lot more to the NR Plus program But those are some of the key takeaways So why not join today? Yeah, do it, uh, it And you know I'm, I'm Unbiased here because I'm not a staff Member of National Review So I, this is just something I'm telling you to do uh, Really for no reason Other than my presence on this podcast uh, It really is a terrific deal And they have some great first year pricing in place So you want to act now Now, it can't be the actual now that I just said because I recorded this podcast, um, I don't know, yesterday. So, but you should do it for your now, not mine. This reminds me of the scene from Spaceballs when they start watching Spaceballs to figure out what they should do next. Uh, (laughs) When will now be then? Soon! Uh, But anyway, whenever whenever your now ends up being, here's what to do. Go to nationalreview.com slash plus. That's nationalreview.com slash plus. And there you can read about everything this membership has to offer. And then just click join now to see all your options. That's NR Plus, folks, nationalreview.comslash plus. And with that, again I hope you heard the little paper flutter. This podcast is now over. This here's here's something to satisfy Kyle Smith. This podcast can serve no purpose anymore um how was that uh goodbye dave uh people think i have a robot voice i don't understand it it's just my voice and i'm not a robot um although that would explain my obsession with the butlerian jihad and it would just be an extension of my self-hatred anyway i'm just rambling at this point so and this isn't my podcast so you you shouldn't have to listen to me ramble uh only jonah can ramble on his podcast i've already abused my privileges as it is so anyway thank you all for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode, and we won't see you because this is a podcast. That's right. It's a podcast. Nobody sees anyone. Goodbye.
0: Cross beams has gone out of skew on the
2: treadle. What on earth does that mean? I don't
0: know. Mister Wentworth just told me to come in here and say that there was trouble at the mill. That's all. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition.
1: <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition.
0: It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say.